Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 51A, Final Touches, Allied Politics and the Somme. In the last episode, we saw how the plans for the Somme were upset by the German offensive at Verdun. As the French diverted more resources to the Meuse, their commitment to the Somme offensive lessened, resulting in the British taking on a larger role. This change in leadership ushered in a difficult planning phase which ensured the battle plan was constantly being revised. The French army, weakened by the parasitic effects of Verdun, sought to retain their influence over the battle plan, while at the same time expecting the British to engage with more divisions on a wider front. Douglas Haig, while embracing the strategic aim for the Somme, understood the dangers this entailed. With his army lacking in experience, he had to balance coalition demands against what he felt was realistic on the battlefield. This proved more difficult than expected, and in the end, the two British planners, Haig and 4th Army Commander Sir Henry Rawlinson, held differing views on how the battle should be carried out. Haig, hoping for but not expecting a breakthrough, planned for all contingencies, while Rawlinson maintained the battle should be slow and closely monitored. These diverging views had yet to be ironed out when on July 1st, 1916, the first wave was sent over the top. As we've seen over the last couple of episodes, the Somme would never be what Joff envisioned back at Chantilly, as battlefield realities had overruled strategic expectations. It had gone from a carefully planned Anglo-French offensive into a scrambled attempt to save France from collapse, with an untested British army leading the way. The battle that was launched on July 1st was not conceived at Chantilly, but was born through the hellfires of Verdun, which in many ways ensured the offensive would not go as planned. This will be our third and final episode before we dive into the Somme proper. For the last two episodes, we've looked at the planning phase from a military perspective, so what I want to do today is switch over to the political side of things and place the Somme in the context of wider British strategy. In short, Britain's strategy was being pulled in opposite directions, and not everyone in London was happy with the Chantilly agreements. Put simply, while the soldiers supported it, the civilian politicians did not. And if we are to understand the Somme, we'll need to flesh out these dissenting voices in more detail. In many ways, the Battle of the Somme was fought on both sides of the channel, with certain cabinet ministers waging a political battle against Britain's military leaders, Douglas Haig in particular. In this, we will see the roots of what would become a bitter rivalry between Haig and the effervescent Welshman David Lloyd George, a rivalry which would overshadow British strategy for the next two years. As a simple way to guide the discussion, the controversy surrounding the Somme can be filtered down to one simple point, a disagreement between the government and military over where to commit Lord Kitchener's army. As we've discussed, Britain did not have a continental army when she declared war in August 1914. When was first dispatched to France, the BEF was a small, close-knit group of professional soldiers, numbering some 100,000-plus reserves. By the end of 1914, the terrible fighting around Ypres had left it decimated, making it clear that more men would be needed. Lord Herbert Kitchener had planned for such an eventuality. Since he expected the war to be a two-year struggle at the least, he knew Britain would have to bide her time and build an army large enough to compete with her continental opponents. This process began as soon as the German forces entered Belgium. Kitchener's famous recruitment poster was slapped on the windows of coffee shops and post offices across the empire, and young men flocked to his banner. After all, Kitchener was an imperial hero, 
a living embodiment of British values, which so many young men aspire to, his request for 100,000 men was met with 1,186,000 volunteers signing their name. To encourage enlistment, the War Office created special bureaucracies to organize locally raised PALS battalions, through which men from the same community or workplace were encouraged to sign up on the understanding that they would train and eventually fight together. This is why so many British units of the First World War have such unusual and localized names, such as the East Kent Regiment, Newfoundlanders Regiment, Northumberland Fusiliers, and the Glasgow Stock Exchange Company, as a few examples. Sadly, many of these units will see their first battles on the Somme, and the names engraved on the tombstones of Commonwealth War Cemeteries can only give us a glimpse of the carnage they experienced. But needless to say, the volunteer rush was encouraging news for the British government. It showed that the war was popular, and that the average Briton believed the coming struggle would define their future well-being. Although the reasons for enlistment differed from each man, the sheer number of volunteers shows that they were eager to have a role, and wanted to play their part before hostilities ended. Throughout the first half of 1915, Kitchener exercised near-dictatorial powers over Britain's war effort. It was his word which set strategy, and few members of the cabinet were able to stand up to him. To be clear, it was Kitchener's name and reputation which allotted him this additional leverage. As Secretary of State for War, his loyalty lay with the government, but because he was also a field marshal, who groomed the likes of John French and Douglas Haig, his authority stretched into the military sphere as well. Kitchener had a habit of playing his cards close to his chest, which was a constant irritation for his military and political colleagues. Opposition inside and outside of the Liberal Party began to fester, and the overzealous efforts of 1915 had left Kitchener dangling precipitously. Opponents were beginning to believe that Kitchener was overstepping his bounds. His refusal to send all resources to France right away was a constant irritation to his Western Front commanders, while his appearance at cabinet meetings in full military uniform reeked of duplicity according to his political enemies. In the end, it was Kitchener's unquestionable authority which led to his downfall. His one-man-show approach meant any and all problems could be traced back to him, making him an easy target for political opportunists. The shell scandal of May 1915 produced the first crack in Kitchener's armor. Reports that British infantry were being sent into battle ill-prepared were leaked to the newspapers, which was a damaging blow to Kitchener's reputation. Mixed with the toxic cloud circling the Gallipoli campaign, Britain took a long look at herself and realized things had to change. It was clear that the war was growing too big for one man to handle. Britain's population, economy, and labor force had to be mobilized if Germany was to be defeated. Under a new coalition government, a series of modernization plans were introduced, which affected all facets of society, including transportation, agriculture, education, and industry. For our purposes, the most significant of these new ministries was Lloyd George's Ministry of Munitions, whose sole purpose was the Organization of Resources for Munitions Manufacturing. As we discussed back in episode 42, Lloyd George helped push Britain onto a total war footing. A former pacifist turned hardliner, Lord George reinvented himself and began the vigorous task of overhauling Britain's industrial landscape, as factories across England were put to work constructing these sinews of war. Lloyd George was a fierce critic of Kitchener, whom he described as a political judgment dressed in a military uniform. But in many ways, Lloyd George helped complete Kitchener's mobilization efforts by supplying the new army with the guns and equipment needed at the front. Although the War Office had done what it could to provide the necessary supplies, it proved too small a body to oversee such an extensive operation. 
the munitions ministry was an improvement to this pre-existing structure, and under Lloyd George's leadership, radically transformed Britain's ability to wage war. Lloyd George was a brilliant organizer, and his successful management of Britain's armaments was a crucial step in his ascent up the political ladder, eventually becoming Prime Minister at the end of 1916. As head of the munitions industry, it was his office which equipped the BEF to fight the attritional battles of 1916-17. Because of this, Lloyd George was a man who could not be ignored, and his detailed knowledge of production quotas and quality assurance was second to none. Lloyd George railed against Kitchener's administration, criticizing what he felt was Kitchener's undue meddling in military affairs. Yet, once he took on the munitions portfolio, these same rules did not apply. Lloyd George understood what was at stake, and had no illusions as to the war's nature, yet he felt it was his ordained mission to disagree with the army on almost everything. As we mentioned in episode 49, Lloyd George was a total warrior, who believed every man, woman, and child had a role to play in securing victory. Yet, he recoiled from the human cost of military success. He was rightly concerned about the Butcher's Bill from 1914-15, and, quite justifiably, feared that extensive fighting on the Western Front would only result in gargantuan losses and insignificant gains. An important distinction needs to be drawn here. Lloyd George was no pacifist. He believed the war had to be executed to its fullest and felt that a compromise peace was an admission of defeat. So we need to be careful not to think of him as a lone voice of common sense crying out in a world gone mad. His memoirs are full of self-inflating rhetoric, which are often taken at face value. Despite his criticisms of Western Front campaigns, the battles of the Somme and Passchendaele would never have been fought without his help, and despite the moral outrage he presents, he never made the symbolic gesture of threatening his resignation. In his memoir, he compared Western Front strategy to a disease of the mind, but at the same time, understood its importance to his own professional gain. He was a smart politician, who appreciated public anxieties over the cost of victory. Ever the populist, he had positioned himself as a people's champion who held the generals accountable, yet never fully grasped the concepts of military strategy. He loved to disagree with Kitchener and later Haig, while floating alternatives as a way to show he had a backbone. He felt the best way to defeat the Central Powers was to nibble away at the other fronts, namely in the Zonzo and the Balkans. While this approach may have saved lives, it would have done little to weaken the Central Powers. If anything, Without a strong British commitment on the Western Front, it is doubtful France would have made it through 1916. As that frightful year was ushered in, Lloyd George was the most vocal opponent of Western Front strategy. In his mind, it was little more than a new opportunity for the generals, in Lloyd George's own words, to sacrifice the flower of the Allied armies in vain efforts to break through defenses bristling with cannon and machine guns. Lloyd George was certainly not alone in this belief his two most powerful supporters being the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Reginald McKenna, and Arthur Balfour, the First Lord of the Admiralty. Balfour had replaced Churchill as First Lord after the Dardanelles fiasco, while McKenna had taken Lloyd George's former post after he left for the munitions ministry. These three men, Lloyd George, Balfour, and McKenna, were matched up against a new class of British generals, who were decisively in favor of campaigning in France. Kitchener's influence may have been clipped after the Shell scandal, but his loss in prestige was quickly supplanted by two recent arrivals, Douglas Haig as C&C of the BEF, and Sir William Robertson, who took over as Chief of the Imperial General Staff, or CIGS for short. 
The arrival of this short-lived triumvirate of Kitchener, Haig, and Robertson marks a distinctive break in Britain's war. In 1915, it had been civilian strategists who dictated policy, best illustrated by Churchill's Dardanelles endeavor. Against his better judgment, Kitchener had been forced to play along. After all, Kitchener's job was to defend Britain's interests, which meant he had global implications to consider as well. Although he had raised an army for the very purpose of fighting in France, Kitchener could not isolate himself from other international events. Unlike Haig, he did not have the luxury of focusing his energies in one theater. But with the ascension of Haig and Robertson, Kitchener now had the support to push through his agenda. The day after Haig was sworn in, the evacuation of Gallipoli was finally complete. As the final batch of Allied troops left the coast, the belief that the war could be won by attacking elsewhere went with them. The days of avoiding a showdown with the German army were fast evaporating. On December the 28th, 1915, the War Committee assembled in London to give their endorsement of Chantilly. This first of several meetings took place in the Prime Minister's residence on 10 Downing Street, just down the road from the War Office and Admiralty buildings. The War Committee consisted of the Cabinet's Inner War Making Policy Group, a select group of individuals who advised the Prime Minister on military matters. After the Shell scandal and subsequent coalition government, the committee was comprised of members from across the political spectrum. Lloyd George and McKenna were liberals, but Balfour and the Secretary of State, Andrew Bernard Law, were conservatives. Other members of the committee included the old foreign minister, Edward Gray, you'll remember him from our first dozen episodes or so, and of course, Lord Kitchener, who at this point had become detached from the dealings of daily government. By and large, the committee was set to endorse the Chantilly strategy, as most saw it as the logical step to end hostilities, but there remained a few members who were unconvinced, Arthur Balfour and Lloyd George being the most vocal. Their opposition to Chantilly was simple. Attacking on the Western Front would produce more of the same. The Germans, Balfour pointed out, were straining every nerve to make their line impregnable, and he doubted whether the British public would stand for the expected skyrocketing casualties. Lloyd George echoed this sentiment, pointing out that Western Front efforts had been futile exercises in slaughter and bloodshed. His suggestion was to have the BEF sit tight in France and use available resources to shore up Russian and Italian fronts. Kitchener, of course, disagreed with this motion and issued a stern reply, arguing that the disjointed efforts of 1915 had shown that attacking elsewhere was impractical. Channeling his inner Morpheus, Kitchener reiterated that the Germans were the gatekeepers of Europe. They were guarding all the doors and holding all the keys, which meant at some point the Allies would have to fight them. Besides, the people of England did not view the Austrians and Turks in the same light as the Germans. Knocking away the props, as Lloyd George liked to coin it, overlooked the simple fact that Germany's allies were not contributing to her war efforts. Even if the Entente managed to knock out one or even both, this would only free Germany from that burden, allowing her to fight unencumbered, which was an even more terrifying prospect. Kitchener thus deduced that only a victory against the Kaiser's forces in France would have a meaningful impact. Although Kitchener was accustomed to political dissension, this latest row seemed to sincerely trouble him. After all, he was not only going up against an angry cabinet, but centuries of imperial tradition. The freehand doctrine outlined that Britain could pursue her interests as she saw fit, and Lloyd George and Balfour were giving that aging philosophy a new lease. Kitchener feared that if Lloyd George and Balfour got their way, Britain could find herself fighting on indefinitely. In a letter to Haig on January the 14th, 
Kitchener informed his army commander that the stakes had been raised. Kitchener warned that due to the failures hitherto, the government was not keen on supporting a new offensive in France. Thus, Kitchener instructed Haig to treat the operation as a chance to impose peace by the end of 1916. By showing that the army was thinking in decisive terms, Kitchener concluded it would weaken the stances of Lloyd George and Balfour, swinging the cabinet back in the army's favor. Kitchener's letter has been interpreted to mean many things. Martin Gilbert, in his study of the psalm, uses it to show how Haig developed an unrealistic view of the campaign. Gilbert argues that Kitchener's suggestion blinded Haig with over-optimism, hampering his judgment and leading to four months of bloodshed. Gilbert, who sadly passed away in February 2015, was a renowned historian who contributed mightily to the study of 20th century warfare. But this humble podcaster needs to go on record and say that I disagree with his argument here. In my opinion, it overlooks two crucial things. The first is that his letter predates the offensive at Verdun, which, as we know, derailed the Allied plans. And two, as we saw last episode, Haig did not begin pondering a breakthrough scenario until the early summer, and that was under very different circumstances than in January. While this letter is important in showing how the psalm was rounded into shape over a six-month period, it shouldn't be used to argue that things were on a preordained course. So as winter gave way to spring, the debate for and against another offensive in France gained momentum. Kitchener was able to deflect the blows levied by Lord George and Balfour, by engaging the two men in a number of hotly contested debates. After January, however, Kitchener would get some badly needed reinforcement. The ministers were soon faced with a new arrival in London, a man whose blunt approach made him an equal sparring partner. This man was CIGS William Robertson. William Robertson, or Wooly as his friends called him, we met back in episode 49, but have yet to see his role in the upcoming offensive, so let's go and fill that empty space now. William Robertson was a man who was not easily intimidated. Through a combination of determination, sheared hard graft, and intellect, he broke through class barriers to become the only man in the British Army to rise from the rank of private to field marshal, a feat yet to be repeated even today. As chief of the Imperial General Staff, Robertson played a central role in masterminding the Allies' war-winning strategy. His job was to stay in London and engage the politicians directly on behalf of the army. Robertson was in line with Kitchener and Haig, believing the only way to defeat Germany was to engage them on the Western Front. In this, Robertson waged a relentless campaign to persuade the government to abandon foreign expeditions and to throw their full support behind the Western Front. There was only one way of ending this war correctly, Robertson wrote to a friend, and that is putting our troops where they can kill the most Germans, and by trusting ourselves and not other people. End quote. In dealing with men like Lloyd George, McKenna, and after March 1916, Winston Churchill, who returned to politics after serving on the Western Front, Robertson brought a blunt approach to debate. His policy was to avoid engaging the politicians directly. Robertson would state his professional advice, and then just keep on repeating it, answering questions with a simple yes or no. He knew Lloyd George's reputation as a fierce debater, who could eviscerate his opponents with the slightest turn of phrase. Instead, Robertson stuck to his principles. In his mind, there was no ground for debate, and he made a habit of repeating the benefits of fighting in France versus elsewhere. During one tense meeting in late January, he had gone toe-to-toe with Lloyd George and Balfour over this very issue. When Lloyd George argued that Britain ran the risk of becoming a French pawn, Robertson fired back that Britain could no longer stand out against their allies, 
and that the time had come to throw the weight of the empire against the enemy fortress. Against the bulwark of Kitchener and Robertson, the committee endorsed the Chantilly Agreement on the caveat, that no major offenses would be launched until the summer, allowing the BEF to build up the necessary guns and equipment. A full endorsement would not come until April, when the pernicious effects of Verdun had changed their tune. But despite this tentative agreement, Lloyd George refused to back down. In his meetings and speeches, he referred to the Somme as a bullheaded fight, and compared the strategic imaginations of Kitchener and Robertson to useless lumber. His combative attitude put Lloyd George on a collision course with Douglas Haig, the man who was tasked with leading the new army in the coming campaign. Lloyd George was curious about the new commander-in-chief. The two men had met just once before, so Lloyd George was eager to size him up. During the final week of January, Lloyd George visited Haig at his headquarters near Bougain, a small commune just up the road from Amiens. One might be surprised to hear this, but the minister's first impression of Haig was quite positive. Haig took Lloyd George on a private tour in his staff car, circling the various battalions and inspecting the front line. Lloyd George saw firsthand the training that was being carried out, and gazed upon the buildup of arms and munitions. The Welshman was impressed with what he saw, no doubt because it confirmed in his own mind the righteousness of his cause. When he departed France on February the 8th, Lloyd George thanked Haig for his hospitality, remarking that his visit had, and I quote, left on my mind a great impression of things being gripped in that sphere of operations. I have a feeling that everything which the austerity, the care, and trained thought of a great soldier can accomplish is being done." End quote. The feeling, however, was not mutual. Robertson had warned Haig of Lloyd George prior to his arrival, writing to the CNC that he opposed the Chantilly Agreement down to his very core. In his diary entry of January 30th, Haig noted earlier that Lloyd George was one to be watched. While he admired his boundless energy, he suspected that Lloyd George could be trouble. As the battle at Verdun ground on, the Somme remained a contentious issue. In Paris, Joffre was engaging France's political elites in much the same fashion as Robertson and Kitchener. At no point during the German offensive did Joffre think of abandoning his prize. If anything, the pressures of the Meuse only added to its urgency. By the late spring, it was clear that Joffre's strategy hinged entirely on Britain's commitment. French diplomats, most notably the future Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, were wary of Joffre's optimism. Clemenceau, who at this point was chairman of France's military committee, felt that Joffre was expecting too much from their untested ally. Joffre had told the chamber that Britain's help was the decisive factor. Lecturing to his audience, Joffre insisted that Britain was doing what she could to assist, and in the meantime, was taking over more of the front to allow reinforcements for Verdun. Joffre was not lying when he said this, but Clemenceau's main concern stemmed from what he felt was Joffre overestimating Britain's level of preparedness. On May the 4th, Clemenceau visited Haig's headquarters and warned him of something Joffre was unwilling to admit. He told Haig that if Britain and France were to attack and fail, there would be a number of people in France who felt the time had come to make peace with Germany. Clemenceau thus insisted that Haig delay his attack until he was absolutely certain of success. Haig's response to this was to assure the Frenchmen that everything was being done to ensure the army would be ready when the time came. On the heels of Clemenceau came a visit from William Robertson, who met with Haig on May the 25th. Like Clemenceau, Robertson pressed Haig to delay until the 15th of August, as Haig wanted to do in the first place. 
Robertson had just come from an emergency meeting of the war consul, which brought ominous news. The British liaison officer warned them that French losses were steadily increasing. Joffre had sent a memo outlining that with the current rate of expenditure, France would be unable to supply any additional divisions. Hidden beneath his wording was the obvious threat that Fayol's 6th Army might be pulled if things deteriorated further. Over a century later, we know that this was a deliberate ploy by the French chief. If Joffre had pulled Fayol's army at the last minute, it would have been the end of Joffre's professional career and no doubt would have brought down Briand's government and plunged France into crisis, which was exactly the type of thing Clemenceau had warned Haig about. In 1916, however, this type of threat could not be ignored. As a countermeasure, Robertson sought to delay the attack. If Britain ran the risk of attacking alone, it would be better to hold off until she was better equipped and trained. Haig was sympathetic to the dilemma, but with the Germans retaking the offensive at Verdun, he was forced to admit that mid-August was too remote. Despite this, Haig would make one final pitch to delay the inevitable attack. On the morning of May the 26th, he met with Joffre. The French army chief pressed that July the 1st was the latest date on which the French army could undertake offensives. After supporting the full weight of the German attack for four months, the French army was maxed out. Haig understood the subtext. Joffre was not asking him about an offensive. He was telling him that the fate of Europe rested on his decision. Haig reiterated that in spite of August 15th being the most favorable date of attack, he was prepared to commence operations on July the 1st at the very earliest. Haig's assurance calmed the French chief, who returned to Chantilly relieved and in high spirits. But as we know, not even the agreed date of July the 1st could withstand changing circumstances. Haig would be forced to bump the date a second time when the Germans reached Fleury. In his final meeting with Joffre on June the 23rd, Haig agreed to begin the preparatory bombardment the following day, thus pushing it forward from the start. The opening bombardment on the Somme began on a cloudy and dull morning on June the 24th. It had thunderstormed the previous night, which made the ground soft and muddy. The barrage lasted on and off for a full week, subjecting the Germans to a mixture of shrapnel, high explosive, and gas shells. The effects of the bombardment and how it was conducted will save for next day, because I want to end off today by looking at how the tactical plans were affected by the political debates in Paris and London. As things at the top shifted, tremors were sent down the chain of command. To start, this did not help the working relationship between Haig and Henry Rawlinson. The two were already at loggerheads over tactical issues, but as things were kicked around at the political level, the army's strategic aims were altered as well. There is one particular instance which shows how their diverging views caused further uncertainty in the Allied camp. On March the 6th, Rawlinson met with his corps commanders to discuss how they would monitor the battle's progress. As a side note, if you're unclear on how the British army was structured, I'll be uploading a small diagram to the website. Once we start talking about the battle, we'll be able to familiarize ourselves with Rawlinson's corps commanders in more detail, but we might as well introduce them now so we have a little bit of familiarity. On July the 1st, 4th Army's strength consisted of five attack corps. These five corps, based on their positioning north-south, were 8th Corps under Elmer Hunter Weston, a veteran of Gallipoli. 8th Corps was positioned north of Beaumont Hamel. South of this, just west of Teepval, was 10th Corps commanded by Thomas Moreland, while 3rd Corps, under Sir William Pulteney, occupied the area opposite Boisel and Ovieres. Rounding out the front line 
was 15th Corps under Sir Henry Horn, and finally, the 13th Corps commanded by Lieutenant General Walter Congreve. If you've forgotten their names already, I'll soon be uploading a map with their names, so there's no need to stress out about it. To monitor the effects of the bombardment, Rawlinson ordered his Corps commanders to set up observation posts and lay thousands of meters of telephone cables below ground. It was decided that the best way for assaulting troops to communicate with the gunners was through a system of lamps equipped with iris shutters. This would allow the gunners to adjust their fire based on real-time information. This was some sound planning, and given the limits of technology, was the best option available. In effect, it was placing the control of the battle in the hands of the soldiers fighting it. This was one way to get around the time lapse which occurred while waiting for orders from the higher-ups. The problem was that Haig did not like it. On May the 10th, after hearing from Clemenceau, Haig visited the headquarters of Hunter Weston at 8th Corps, where he impressed upon the importance of getting through the German lines as soon as possible. Haig knew his audience. Hunter Weston had been at Gallipoli. In fact, he had been tasked with leading the Allied landings at the tip of the peninsula, which we know was almost thrown back to the overwhelming Turkish resistance. Haig had arrived to convince him that the conditions on the Western Front favored speed over caution. The fields of northern France were not the jagged cliffs of Gallipoli after all, and tactics should be thus amended to suit these circumstances. By going to Hunter Weston personally, Haig overstepped his bounds and committed a major error. Not only did this undermine Rawlinson's authority, it also showed that Haig totally misread the situation. Since Haig wanted as little delay as possible, he stubbornly believed that everyone else should share the same vision. What Haig was doing was trying to show Hunter Weston that since his troops were all starting at the same point, there was no need for a cautious approach. At Gallipoli, men had to disembark from boats which made the advance a slow proceeding. When Haig discovered Hunter Weston was planning for a restrained approach, he assumed this had nothing to do with Rawlinson's attack plan, but more to do with Hunter Weston fearing another bloodbath like Cape Hellas. In short, Haig felt his visit would reinvigorate the corps commander, when in fact, it did little but show how far apart High Command really was. This interjection does not look good on Haig's part. Instead of ironing out the differences with Rawlinson, Haig compounded the issue by telling Hunter Weston to set objectives far beyond what Rawlinson was intending, overlooking the fact that any change in direction should have come from Rawlinson's office. As William Philpott writes, the fact that Haig was giving tactical lessons to his senior commander six weeks before the attack is indicative of the deficiencies facing a rapidly expanded, inadequately trained army. In short, Haig was trying to do too much, which made everything else that much more convoluted. Despite these conceived setbacks, Haig remained optimistic. In the weeks prior to the battle, Haig visited the various headquarters and was pleased with the preparations. As the Allied guns pounded the German positions, Special raiding parties were sent across no man's land to inspect their accuracy. What these raids reported, however, was not promising. The example of the Newfoundland Regiment on the night of June the 27th is one instance of how these raids went wrong. The Newfoundland Regiment was ordered to raid the German first positions at beaumont Hamel for the purpose of testing enemy fortifications and capturing prisoners. On this particular raid, the artillery had done its job. The barbed wire had been cut, allowing them to come within meters of the German position. But as they approached, a German flare illuminated the night sky, and a fierce firefight broke out. Only two Newfoundlanders were able to enter the German trench, but were taken prisoner. 
while four more were killed in the subsequent retreat. This is just one example of what went wrong, and the pattern repeated itself almost daily as the final hours ticked closer. Hegg, of course, was not pleased with these results. In his diary, he referred to them as amateurish and poorly led. As you can imagine, his seemingly callous assessment has not won him many friends, and has often been used to paint him as insensitive. But we must not forget that Hegg was commenting on how the new divisions were performing under fire. These reports were telling him that the new divisions were failing in the most basic trench warfare tactics, something which did not bode well for future prospects. Hegg was hoping that these raids would prove successful, thus alleviating his concern over the army's preparedness. Since these raids were producing mixed results at best, it caused him greater anxiety over the state of the army. The big difference now was there was no time to back out. The Anglo-French armies would be going over the top in just a few days, and with the clock ticking down to zero, this was hardly reassuring. In the next episode, we'll jump right into the battle by examining what unfolded on July the 1st. Since most of you are familiar with the events in the British sector, we'll start by covering events there. One needs to keep in mind that July the 1st was not the complete disaster one might think. It was certainly a terrible test for the British, but in the French sectors, things went much smoother. What explains this varying fortune is a combination of several things. Most importantly, the battlefield experiences of the French army versus the untested optimism of the British. But beneath this lurks a more fundamental issue, the differing strategies of Hag and Rawlinson. July the 1st would show that both men were right in their assessments. Hag's plan nearly worked, but an overly cautious Rawlinson would let the opportunities slip through his fingers. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to thank our most recent donors, Tim, Michael, and Jeffrey. Thank you very much for your donations, guys. If you would like to make a donation, you'll find the PayPal link up on the homepage. Donations go to cover the cost of hosting and of acquiring new sources, which I am always on the hunt for. Another way to help the show is to look us up on iTunes and leave us a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 51A of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.